perhaps some of the most powerful are visual interpreters, painters, artists. The painting that you see behind me is Rembrandt's The Sacrifice of Isaac. Last week, we began to explore the faith of Abraham as presented in Hebrews chapter 11. We talked about three parts of faith. Faith as knowledge, faith as affirmation or agreement, and faith as commitment. In other words, learning about God's truth, agreeing to God's truth, and entrusting ourselves to God and His truth. We took the example of learning to swim. You can go on YouTube and watch endless videos on how to swim by an Olympic swimmer. That's step one. Secondly, you can agree that swimming looks like fun and you want to do it. But then thirdly, you haven't actually swim, swam, swum if you haven't plunged into the pool. So you have to plunge into the pool. In the Christian life, we are on a cyclical journey. It's a cycle through the three parts of faith. As we learn more about God, His Spirit opens our hearts to be receptive to His Word. He then empowers us to live in light of that truth. In response, we entrust ourselves to Him more and more, and we continue learning. Knowledge, affirmation, and commitment. This is the infinite journey of the Christian life. We embark on it when God calls us out to follow Him, when He opens our eyes, when He pricks our hearts so that we turn our backs on our sinfulness and turn completely to Him. Last week, we heard about how God interrupted Abraham in the prime of life. Abraham responded by setting out in faith. Today, we are going to look again in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, for a final episode in the life of Abraham. In Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, we read, It was by faith that Abraham, when he was put to the test, offered up Isaac. Yes, Abraham, who had received the promise, was in the very act of offering up his only son, the one about whom it had been said that in Isaac shall your family be named. He reckoned that God was capable of raising him even from the dead. And in one sense, he did indeed receive him back from there. Abraham offering up Isaac has become one of the most famous and widely discussed pieces of world literature. The sacrifice or binding of Isaac, as it is known in the Hebrew tradition. The essential background to that story is that God had promised to bless Abraham and make him into a great nation. He and his wife Sarah, however, were unable to have children. What's more, Abraham and Sarah were both growing old, getting, getting on in years. Sarah was well past the age of childbearing. As for Abraham, the author of Hebrews humorously calls him as good as dead. Ouch! Given their condition, Abraham and Sarah had both laughed in response to God's promise, with Abraham asking, can a hundred-year-old man become a father, or Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, have a child? But God is faithful. The Lord was attentive to Sarah, just as he had said, and the Lord carried out just what he had promised to her. 
Sarah became pregnant and gave birth to a son for Abraham when he was old, at the very time God had told him. Abraham named his son, the son Sarah bore him, Isaac. They had no trouble finding a name for this child, Yitzhak. Isaac means he laughs in Hebrew. But the laughter would soon fade as Abraham's story makes, takes a wild U-turn towards the serious. God promised that through Isaac, Abraham's rightful descendants would be named. Isaac was therefore a promised child in many ways, since the future of not only Abraham's family, but an entire nation was depending on this promised child. But now God puts Abraham to the test to see if Abraham will sacrifice Isaac back to him. So we read in Genesis 22, After these events, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! Abraham answered, I'm here! God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up as an entirely burned offering there on one of the mountains that I will show you. Abraham got up early in the morning, harnessed his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, together with his son Isaac. He split the wood for the entirely burned offering, set out, and went to the place God had described to him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place at a distance. Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will walk up there, worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the entirely burned offering and laid it on his son Isaac. He took the fire and the knife in his hand, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? Abraham said, I'm here, my son. Isaac said, Here is the fire. Here's the wood, but where is the lamb for the entirely burned offering? Abraham said, the lamb for the entirely burned offering? God will see to it, my son. The two of them walked on together. They arrived at the place that God had described to him. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He tied up his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. But the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, I'm here. The messenger said, don't stretch out your hand against the young man and don't do anything to him. I now know that you revere God and didn't hold back your son, your only son from me. Abraham looked up. And saw a single ram caught by its horns in the dense undergrowth. Abraham went over, took the ram, and offered it as an entirely burned offering instead of his son. Abraham named that place, the Lord sees. That is the reason people today say, on this mountain, the Lord is seen. The Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from, he- from heaven a second time and said, I give my word as the Lord that because you did this and didn't hold back your son, your only son, I will bless you richly and I will give you countless descendants. They will conquer their enemies' cities. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of your descendants because you obeyed me. After Abraham returned to the young men, they got up and went to Beersheba, 
where Abraham lived. When we read the story of the binding of Isaac closely, there are a number of fascinating details that deserve closer inspection. So let's take a look. In verse 1, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along. In verse 1, when the story opens, God calls to Abraham after these events. We are not told exactly when this takes place, but it could be that Isaac is at least around about a teenager at this time. The author, though, is more interested in pulling back the veil on God's plan. He wants to let us in on the little secret that what is about to take place is to test Abraham. Interestingly, this will be the only time in Scripture when God is said to test an individual. We may then be surprised that after everything that Abraham has been through, God still finds it fitting to test him. Could it be that now that Abraham has finally received this promised child, his love for God has diminished, has started to shrink back? Will Abraham pass the test? Abraham responds, I'm here, or here I am. This response carries a sense of willingness to listen carefully and respond favorably to whatever God is about to say. This will be the only thing that Abraham will say to God in this story. I'm here. Here I am. Yes, Lord? Are we as quick to listen? Are we as willing to obey when God calls us? Verse 2. God then gives the surprising command to take his son and go to the land of Moriah. When speaking of Isaac, God piles on the description. Your son. Your only son. The one whom you love, Isaac. Everything that is said of Isaac adds weight to God's request. God moves from the general to the specific, from the obvious to the near and dear. Just as he had earlier told Abraham to go from his land, his relatives, and his, house, and his father's house to an unknown land, so now he asks him to take his son, his only son, the one he loves, Isaac. Even before we get to the command, we feel the tension building between the love of son and the love of God. God commands Abraham to go using the same expression that we heard back at Abraham's call in Genesis 12, lech lecha. Abraham is asked to separate himself. There in Genesis 12, Abraham was asked to separate himself from his land, his family, their pagan rituals, and his past. Here, Abraham is being asked to separate from his future, a future of countless descendants whom God had promised through Isaac. Abraham had already sacrificed his past for God. Would he now sacrifice his future? Go to the land of Moriah. Offer Isaac there as an entirely burned offering. An entirely burned offering was typically an animal slaughtered cut into pieces and presented on an altar of wood and burned to ash. The worshiper sends up the offering in smoke to God as a total offering. Would God now require Abraham to do the same with his only son? Is he being asked to mimic a pagan ritual? And not just a pagan ritual, but one that involves murder of a child? Is a father not supposed to love 
his own son more dearly than he loves himself. How can this be? So a dilemma presents itself. God is God. Abraham is a man of faith. Sacrificing a child is not only pagan, but unimaginable. It's a sin. What is Abraham to do? Isaac is without a doubt the most precious sacrifice that God could have asked of Abraham. What a horrifyingly devastating, deeply personal command. To think what would become of Isaac. What would become of God's promises? This command appears to stand in direct opposition to God's character and his earlier promise to make Abraham a father of many nations. Will Abraham sacrifice the one person who can fulfill God's promises? Promises that were to bless Abraham's descendants so that they can thrive. At stake are God's reputation and the future of his people. Verse 3 While we are left pondering this dilemma, the narrator quickly proceeds to tell us that early in the morning, Abraham gets up and saddles his donkey. Abraham, unlike us, shows no hesitation. In fact, he seems to be almost keen to go obey God's seemingly unethical command. He rises early to make it happen. Where's Sarah? No protest? While the story is focused on Abraham, it reveals nothing of what he or she, Sarah, must have been thinking. Abraham even apparently busies himself with with action, chopping wood, while his servants stand idly by. Why didn't they chop the wood? Is Abraham now trying to stall? Where is Sarah? Verse 4, Abraham treks for three days. On top of asking Abraham to do the unthinkable, this long journey must have triggered further mental anguish. What was Abraham thinking as they walked for three days? What was Isaac thinking? We get no sense, however, that Abraham is questioning or doubting or trying to turn back. He is focused on obeying God's word. His resolve to take God at his word is cementing further and further day after day. He is obeying God because he wants to, not hastily on a whim. Verse 5, he said to his servants, you two stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go up there. We will worship and then return to you. We will worship and then return to you? We? What does Abraham have in mind here? Is he simply confused? Is he using we to hide his intentions from the servants and from Isaac? Is he not going to follow through with it? The author of Hebrews takes this as a sign of faith. Faith in God in the face of apparent contradiction. Sacrifice Isaac. Fulfill promises through Isaac. How can both be true? Just like Abraham received the promises... He trusts that he will also receive his son back from the dead. God is able to raise Isaac back up, even from ashes. Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But Abraham goes further. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and the Lord gives back. Verses 7 and 8. Finally, Isaac breaks the silence. His words must have pierced Abraham to the heart. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham's response is curiously pregnant with ambiguity. The lamb for the sacrifice? 
God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The words, the burnt offering, my son, are really chilling when read in Hebrew. It's possible to read this not as, my son, God will provide a lamb for the offering, but God will provide a lamb for the offering, my son. My son being the burnt offering. God will provide a lamb for the offering, that is, my son. Is Abraham giving Isaac a hint of what is to come? There's no reply. The two of them walk on together. Verse 9, Abraham constructs an altar, and the wood is readied for the fire. Isaac is bound. Surprisingly, the young man who had asked about the lamb for the sacrifice doesn't ask about the ropes. Why are you tying me up? A much younger Isaac could have easily prevented his aged father from tying him up. We may then read something of Isaac's obedience into this. Just as Abraham displays faith through obedience, so too Isaac shows trust in his father through cooperation. Verses 10 and 11. We now reach the most terrifying point in the story. Abraham is going to go through with it. His hand is poised. The knife is drawn. If ever there was a time to crave divine intervention, it's now. But a voice resounds from heaven with urgency. Abraham, Abraham! Once again, Abraham's response is one of supple attentiveness. Yes, I'm listening. And what I love about the Rembrandt is seeing the knife fall. To me, that is the most powerful thing about this this painting, the knife falling. Don't harm the boy, verse 12. Now I know that you fear God. Was God's knowledge lacking? No. In the Bible, faithfulness must be demonstrated by action, faith action to be confirmed in God's sight. Fearing God means to honor Him in worship, obedience, and an upright life. It's not the same thing as being afraid of God. As someone once pointed out, we are afraid of God when we have sinned and feel guilty. But we fear Him when we are ready to act such that we can stand before Him. So to fear God is to adopt a posture of total dependence, obedience, and confidence. It is obedience which does not hold back even that which is most precious to us and commits to God even the future which he himself has promised. Verses 13 and 14. God provides a ram, a male sheep, which Abraham sacrifices in place of his son. Abraham isn't told to do so. But he reasons that this animal is God's provision. Like Noah, who offered a sacrifice upon exiting the ark, so too Abraham exits from the horror of human sacrifice and offers an animal sacrifice out of gratitude and devotion. He then names that place Adonai Yireh, or Yahweh Yireh, or Jehovah Jireh, as we sometimes say in English, meaning Yahweh sees to it. Yahweh provides. Please note that he doesn't call this place Abraham obeys. He doesn't celebrate his obedience. This place 
is not a memorial to his action. We are to be more impressed by God's faithfulness than Abraham's. Yahweh provides. Yahweh sees to it on the spot. Verses 15 through 18. In these verses, we are reassured that Abraham's ordeal wasn't for nothing. As a result of Abraham's faithfulness and God's gracious provision, God's promises are repeated to Abraham in full and in their most emphatic form yet. I will bless you richly. I will give you countless descendants. So what do we do with this? This 10th trial in the life of Abraham is as disturbing as it is perplexing. How can the author of Hebrews hold up such a gruesome tale as the ultimate faith experience of Christianity and Judaism's most celebrated patriarch? How can Abraham serve as a model of faith if what he did once should never be repeated? Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna remarks, there is an undeniable atmosphere of the singular and the unique that pervades this story. God's request is treated as something utterly extraordinary, something that a person would never think of doing on their own initiative. God's request is so clearly shocking and unrepeatable that the reader, we, are informed in advance that God is only testing Abraham and doesn't want the sacrifice for his own needs. In fact, when we consider the central beliefs of our Christian confession, we find it organized around one-time events that are not to be or cannot be repeated, events that are, in fact, impossible. In the Christian storyline of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, we find in each something of the impossible. First, at creation, we confess that something was created from nothing. But we would do well to confess, rather, that in the beginning there wasn't nothing, there was God. He always has been and always will be. Hebrews 11, in fact, opens with this thought, taking us back to the beginning of all things to prepare us for the future, to prepare us for the impossible. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. In the beginning was God. His word brings forth the impossible. Secondly, at the fall, the seemingly illogical, the impossible would take place. How is it that God would prepare a luscious garden for his people, give them everything that they need, walk with, him, walk with them in perfect communion, yet they would rebel and do the one thing that he said not to do? Sin truly is temporary insanity. Nakedness with no worries thrown to the wind only to scratch a moment's itch. But before we cast the first stone, we ought to withdraw our hands when we realize that this is what we too do when we fail to obey God's word. Has he not given us everything we need for life and godliness just by knowing him? I encourage my children in their schoolwork by telling them that knowledge is the prize. So if knowledge is the prize, then knowing the supreme God is the supreme prize. But we, like Adam and Eve, reach out and take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than from the tree of life. 
It's impossibly possible. Thirdly, at redemption, once again, the impossible takes place. God becomes man so that we can become like him. As I preached in December on the incarnation, God the Son put on flesh so that you could put on faith. Not only that, but God became man to accomplish only what God, as man, could accomplish. That is the forgiveness of sins. Not his own sins, but as John the Baptist proclaims, the sin of the world. One man dying for his friend is truly noble and full of virtue. But one man dying for the sin of the world? Is that not an abstract absurdity? One man charged with the crimes of a multitude? Oh, with God you see nothing is impossible. What's impossible for humans is possible for God. This has for effect that if anyone is in Christ... There is new creation. Old things have gone, and look, everything has become new. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. Fourthly and finally, restoration. How is it that God has already started putting the world to rights when creation is still groaning? As quickly as the author of Hebrews announces that God has placed everything under Jesus' feet, He hurries to add that, as things are at present, we don't see everything subjected to him. The already and the not yet. The impossible becoming possible. The creation distorted at the fall, taking a new breath with the resurrected lungs of the sun, plotting a trajectory towards resurrection. How can this be? How will this happen if not by the one through whom the lasting effects of temporary insanity are not simply be reversed, but translated into the makings of a new creation? As if something from nothing were too small a task, he is now making something greater from something lesser. Who will accomplish all of this and more? Thanks be to God. You see, the Christian faith does not shy away from the impossible. Abraham trusted God for the impossible. When stuck between a command and a promise, he was not immobilized, seeking to resolve an ethical dilemma, a logical tension, but faithfully obeyed the word of God. He trusted God for the impossible. Being fully convinced that God had the power to accomplish what he had promised, Abraham reckoned that God was capable of raising his son Isaac even from the dead. Abraham trusted God for resurrection. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal body, your human body also, through his spirit that lives in you. I don't know if we fully appreciate how radical all of this is. In Abraham's day, no one had been resurrected. It's difficult to imagine Abraham even having this category in his mind. When you die, you stay dead. And is that not what we know from our own experience as well? That's normally what happens in the ordinary. But God's direct intervention has a habit of disrupting the normal flow of history. The extraordinary displaces the ordinary. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What can we conclude about the binding of Isaac? First, if we are unbearably troubled by God's request, we have even every reason to be. 
And that's perhaps even an indication that this story is having its desired effect on us, binding up our own emotions. If that's the case, let us remind ourselves of what we know about God from a wide reading of Scripture. He is good. He reveals himself in specific ways at specific times. He issues at times extraordinary commands at unique times for unique purposes. God has sufficient reason to do what he does. He does not erratically, erratically wield his power over his human creation just for the thrill of watching people squirm real. Secondly, the binding of Isaac invites us to be honest with ourselves and others about the uncomfortable. Certain aspects of the Christian faith are not, cannot be explained away. The power of the binding of Isaac is that it binds up the thought life of those who listen attentively. So too, Jewish Nobel Peace Prize winning author and Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel, candidly says of the binding of Isaac, this is a tale of anguish and faith that has never left us. Actually, it never let us go. The event that happened on Mount Moriah 4,000 years ago continues to haunt our memory and our lives like a stinging wound. It's impossible to detach ourselves from it. It is with fear and trembling that Søren Kierkegaard approached the subject, and it's the same for us, fear and trembling. The more I explore it, and I do so often, the less I come closer to a resolution. The more I dive into it, the more I find that I'm lost in a thick black forest for which no way finds its for which no way out leads to a single and maybe reassuring truth. All the questions I've asked myself more than 30 odd years ago here remain open and burning. What history of the Jewish people is going to begin in a way that violates what is most frail, most human in the human being with an attempted murder? I still do not understand why Abraham needed a tenth test to prove the strength and solidity of his faith in one God, nor do I understand why God needed this test. That's what Elie Wiesel concluded. Secondly, we can conclude that we can confidently establish that God does not desire human sacrifice as was practiced by the pagan nations surrounding the Israelites. God made this request of Abraham to test him, not because how some, he somehow wanted or needed Isaac to die. As the prophet Hosea confirms, God desires faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is different in that he offered himself up willingly to do God's will. Furthermore, Jesus is the greater Abraham. His mental anguish extreme in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestling with God's will. God the Father would himself experience in full measure what he asked of Abraham in giving up his one and only beloved son to be bound on a cross. Jesus was bound to the cross to unbind us, dying to redeem us. He too was brought to the place of sacrifice by his father. He too bore the wood of his altar, his cross. Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial ram crowned with thorns offered in our place. What then of Abraham's faith should we imitate if we are to heed Hebrews' exhortation not to be lazy, but to, be, but to imitate those who are inheriting the promises of God through faith and perseverance? First, 
We are to live lives marked by obedience to God's word. We are to trust him even when we don't understand. We are to trust him for the impossible. We are to entrust ourselves to him for redemption, for restoration. The sacrifice of Isaac underscores the extent of Abraham's faithfulness. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Abraham's faith was revealed in a complete dependence upon God. Secondly, we are to walk humbly with our God and others on this journey of faith, not relying on our own reason. In this information age of do your own research and distrust of authority, this is a challenge to submit to the wisdom of others, to remain teachable and open to new avenues of thought. Thirdly, our own reasoning can only take us so far. That is why some have talked about taking a leap of faith. We can never know the specifics of life's most significant occasions, but we can confidently cling to what God has revealed to us in His Word. As Moses said towards the end of his life, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever so that we may follow all the words of his law. In closing, the author of Hebrews would have us look to the life of Abraham and the binding of Isaac as sources of courage and perseverance in the face of adversity. Jewish martyrs found renewed purpose in Isaac's compliance when being offered up to God. Sarah's silence invites us to reflect on the role of motherhood and female voices, even if the author of Genesis limits his narrative to Abraham. How will we live by faith in God? How will we live by faith in the God of the impossible, God the provider? How can the unrepeatable become a model for our lives? It is, in fact, these incomparably heavy unrepeatables of life that exert unequal force on our daily lives. God We'll see to it.